All right, we are beginning John 8. And I think I may have mentioned this last time. Though I teach sometimes the same things in the same time period in different places. So I can't always remember where I've taught what. But at the risk of uh, being redundant, this first story, John 8, actually it's uh, 753, and then John 8, 1 to 11, which is called the Pericope Adultery, among New Testament scholars. A Pericope is a short story that has very uh, clear boundaries and may actually fit into a larger text or may not. It also, I think, can be just a, a segment of uh, passage. But a pericope adultery is uh, a work that is not Johannine. It's not written by John. And in the various ancient Greek manuscripts that floated around, <laughs> my version, which is the New Revised Standard Version, has bra double brackets around this story, indicating uh, that it was not originally in John. And its position is very tenuous. I mean, we don't know where it belongs in the Bible. We don't know who wrote it. The footnote for this bracketing says, the most ancient authorities lack 753 to 811. So the most ancient manuscripts don't have it at all. That is of John. Now, the most ancient manuscripts, I don't believe, are complete. So that doesn't mean that this story wasn't in there somewhere. But it could be that it didn't have it at all. Other authorities add the passage here, or after 736, or after 2125, or after Luke 2138. So you have this position, not at all, a 736, after 736, after 2125, or after Luke 2138. So you have five options. Hmm. But the reason I say it's not Johannine, that it is, does not belong to John, is that all you have to do is translate the book. I haven't, I don't know if I ever translated the rest of the gospel. I know I cut my teeth on 1 John in Greek. And then we moved to the gospel of John before, I think. I think we started 1 John in winter quarter. And then we started uh, John, the gospel of John, somewhere in spring quarter. Maybe still in winter quarter. And we were barreling along. We had just finished translating, I think, the last part of chapter 7. And the teacher assigned us John 8, 1 to 11. And I remember sweating through that, that pericope adultery. It was the, the Greek was so challenging. It was unlike anything I had encountered. It did not sound like John at all. The vocabulary was different. The style was different. The syntax was different. It just clearly, to me, was not Johannine. And I had heard this uh, exchange going on about this pericope uh, and, and had wondered whether it was true. I had no doubts by the time I finished translating it because it was, it was just so different from the rest of the Gospel. Nevertheless, all Bibles keep it. 
all scholars believe it should be part of the canon. Why do you think that might be? Still a story of Jesus. It's still a story of Jesus. You know, the problem with that is that there's a lot of stories of Jesus that we have that we don't think Jesus had, like the time. There's a whole apocryphal work called uh, the Infant Gospel, Infancy Gospel. Well, wouldn't they show, wouldn't it be recorded what they were doing when they first set up the Bible verses and chapters and all that? Wouldn't they have talked about it? Their decisions of each chapter, each verse, where they there were no there were no discussions until the second or third centuries of that nature. Uh, originally, the gospels were orally delivered, okay, oral tradition, and then and they became written down probably towards the end of the first century and into the second century. Luke certainly wrote his gospel. Uh, and it's possible Matthew wrote his. In fact, there's a there's a whole discussion about whether Matthew's gospel was written in Hebrew or not. But it's possible that Mark's gospel remained oral. And by the way, Mark's gospel has three endings. And the question is, which ending are we going to accept as the most original? Uh, this is what happens to things orally when they're handed down. I I I have to say that the problem with saying, you know, because it's about Jesus is valid, and that's partially true, but you do have these infancy gospels where, where for example, Jesus curses a boy who, who ran into him, and he dies. <laughs> this is when he's a boy. Uh, this is a Gnostic gospel, and it hardly bears any resemblance to the Jesus we know in the gospels. Uh, so, so just because it's about Jesus doesn't mean it's necessarily true or valid. So why else do you think they included it in the canon? I mean, nobody, no group of Christians has ever rejected this story. Or would they be afraid of changing the Bible? Well, if the, most, if, if the most ancient manuscripts don't have it at all, then are they changing the Bible, or are they just simply re getting it back to what it originally was? This story still reflects the essence of, you know. That is why they can include it in the canyon. In fact, to sharpen that a bit, the, the time period when some of these were added, some things were added and some things were taking place, around the second, third centuries, um, especially in the third century, you have the beginning of the monasticism. And it's very unlikely that a monk, a scribe, or a monk copying a cell would favor a story like this as coming from Jesus. Because their view of dealing with adulterous women was very different than the Gospels portrayed Jesus. Mm. So it's it's believed that... In all likelihood, this is a genuine story that kind of floated around the Christian community. And it finally, some scribes said, you know, this story needs to be put somewhere. And so they started putting it in. And uh, it makes sense. So with that, all of that, 
we can now jump into the story. Shalina, would you read it for us, please, and start with verse 53 of chapter 7. And everyone went to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Now early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. Then the scribes and the Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commands us that we should be, that such should be stoned. But what do you say? This they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger, as though he did not hear. So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Then those who had heard it, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest even to the last. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had raised himself up, and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. A lot of things come to my memory reading this story. There's a lot of things to unpack. What questions do you have about the story or observations? They're so caught up in this whole thing with Jesus, they just cannot even see how good and compassionate and this story is like so powerful. It just reflects so much of who Jesus is and why we should not be afraid of him. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's also another example of how we have to be really careful and to have discernment about what we believe and what we follow. It can't be just an emotional thing or historical thing or my parents did it so I do it and this. It's really the whole Bible tells really tells you you have to think things through. Yeah, because if you look at the Old Testament, um, she should be stoned, right? There's no question. Uh, the laws, uh, you catch the woman caught in adultery, uh, you stone her to death. Um, The the question I have for you, though, is that the whole law? Well, it doesn't talk about the male part. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) They were both to be stoned. This is is very one-sided here, Uh, bringing just this woman. Of course, none of these Pharisees would have been with her, right? Well, you know, it makes me wonder what happened because it says that she was caught in the very act. Now, now, who was the one who caught her and how would he catch her in the very act? This wasn't a trap? It very well probably was. Well, this was a setup. She was, she was probably was the guy that was with her and there's something he didn't like that she did or didn't do. So, he... so you maybe say it was a date rape or something. Well, or maybe not, but there was something in that relationship that he decided he was going to deal with her. 
Or did the Pharisee? Or did the Pharisees plot this whole thing? Or they plotted the whole thing, yeah, to set up Jesus. They're not so concerned about her. They're worried about. Her. They would already stoned her if that was the deal. But mm, yeah. that's true. They would have. They they wanted to, they wanted to get Jesus uh, and to to call him on his abridging the law of Moses. Now, if he forgives this woman, uh, he's broken the law. And they, they're imposing on his compassion. They, they know he's going to be compassionate in this case, and they want to deal with it accordingly. And you know, Jesus doesn't turn the tables, does he? I, I think of what he could have done. And, and my human nature, you know, if I had been him, I would have said, okay, so who was it that caught her? Step forward, please. Yeah. Say, uh, not only did he caught her, was she caught by somebody, but I have wondered if it was a Pharisee that uh, propitiated the whole thing. Well, I wouldn't be surprised. I wouldn't be surprised if he got her, if he, he seduced her and everything. Yeah, and the other thing, here's another picture of, of him taking the middle road. He didn't fall to either side to answer the question. Right. He took the middle road. See, I I would have had him single out the guy who found, who who caught them, and I would have had him single out the the guy who did the act, and then stand them all up and say, shall you all be stoned? (laughs) Jesus is so far beyond. Jesus is like me, right? Jesus takes them where they are. Have you ever worked with a blackberry vine? Trying to grub it out? What happens when you fight it? You don't like it. It wraps right around your legs. I've had this happen. Long blackberry vine, <laughs> trying to get rid of it. And I push against it. It just, it just wraps around me. And then I'm in a worse state than before. If I go in the direction the blackberry vine wants to go, I can conquer it. That's what Jesus does. He doesn't fight back. He doesn't single out. He doesn't get vindictive. He doesn't counter-accuse. Well, whoever wrote this down originally must also want to point out that we all have sin. And uh, we have to have compassion for each other. And so you've got Christ saying, you know, whoever sinned is without sin. The first stone, well, nobody's without sin. And so then you have compassion. I wonder, though, just by him writing it in the dirt there, they already knew he did miracles and stuff. Why would that keep them from going ahead and stoning her? Just because he's writing their sins out. Yeah, we we don't know for sure that he was writing their sins, but tradition suggests that it it was. I would think others probably could read it too. Maybe there were things they didn't want each other to know. You know, most of us keep our stuff to ourselves as much as we can. Well, don't you thought, suppose he started with, he started with the, let's see, he began with the elders. 
the oldest people. Well, that's what it's, yeah, that's why mine translate too. He's not saying, he's not saying don't stone her. He's saying, okay, whoever's without sin among you, stone her. Mm -hmm. So Jesus isn't canceling the law. He's just saying who's qualified to carry it out. Mm. Only Jesus. <clears throat> but did you think Moses' law said that whoever stones women has to be without sin? No, it doesn't say that. You know, like a Pharisee or say that you've been cleansed in the temple and stuff, so I could go ahead and stone her because now my sins are all forgiven, I'm cleansed. No, the, the law does not say that, does not make that kind of adjustment. But Jesus never leaves the law the way it is. He goes beyond it. Always. He raises it to a higher standard. And and this is this is a very unjustified case. You wonder what would Jesus' response be if they brought both the man and the woman. Mm -hmm. Moses commanded us to stone these. What do you say? I believe he still would have forgiven them. Mm -hmm. But uh, it would be interesting to to hear how that would have gone. Uh, there's a, just a little detail in the story that I would like to bring out. How do artists paint this picture? Describe it for me. Well, the men are standing around. Christ is there, but she's on the ground. Right. She's thrown on the ground yeah. before him, in front of him. And he's, what position is he? Standing, sitting? Jesus? Yeah. I don't know. It seems like a member is reaching down to her. In some artist depiction, that may be true. He's usually standing. And she's usually thrown at his feet. What does the text actually say? He calmly bent down. Oh no, that's what he wrote. They set her in the midst. Yeah, it's literally, I think, caused her to stand in the midst. Your mind says the lawyers and Pharisees entrapped women into adultery and then they threw her down before Jesus in front of the crowd. So this is how uh -huh. she was thrown down. So. Well, what who, what version is this? That's Jennings. Oh, Tim Jennings. Mm -hmm. He's paraphrasing. <laughs> that's not what the that's <laughs> that's not what the uh, Greek says. It caused they put her before him. They they and and I think if you were to translate that into Hebrew, it'd be caused to stand. Well, would he be sitting though? He was sitting. Because, I, oh, I guess my mind was just, when you brought this up, I thought the, the teachers and the rabbis and everybody else stood and everybody else, no, they sat and everybody else stood. That's what it was. He would be sitting and the people he's working with would be standing. Right, right. they're standing. But it says here, uh, verse 1 or 2, all the people came to him and he sat down. And began to teach them. Wow, my Bible doesn't even have that at all. The part where he says, oh, never mind, it totally does. <laughs> I missed like, it. There's no note here saying it's been added. Um, and this one says, and he sat down to teach them. And then when he writes, he bends over. The, the Greek can be either he bent down or he bent over. And I, I see him sitting there and bending over. He's sitting on the temple steps. Mm -hmm. So he has to bend over to reach the ground. 
And so he reaches the ground, and he might have gotten up just to stoop over, and then he straightened up. Now, maybe he was standing at that point, but I'm, I think it's just as plausible that he was sitting the whole time. And it says, again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. But, but the, the Greek can be either bent over or stooped down. So when you, did you take a class from her? No. You would have been standing in the class because she's teaching, see? <laughs> well, that's what they did. See, oh, Christ oh, was then. teaching. They, they sat and everybody else stood, right? I think so. Yeah. I think he sat while they stood. So he's left below, and he straightens up. Now here's the woman standing, and Jesus sitting. Do you get the posturing? This is, to me, the magnificent role of Jesus, who said the Son of Man came to be served, to serve, not to be served, and to be slave of all. Jesus is looking up at this woman, giving her full dignity and personhood and value. I wish somebody would paint that picture the way I see it there, because I think it would be the most magnificent example of how Jesus treats us, particularly women who are always to blame when something like this happens. That's not to say they never are, but often they are blamed when they are not to blame. So we don't know what he wrote on the, on the ground. The temple floor, the temple ground was not dirt. It was um, probably stone, pay, uh, pay, uh, kind of like you find in mosaic, the mosaics and in uh, mm. other uh, synagogues and, and places, uh, important places in, the, in that part of the world in that time. So there would be dust. People gather, bring dust in on their sandals. Um, but it's not going to stay there permanently. By the time anyone else can get there to read it, the enough shuffling and everything is, is going to wipe it away. And it strikes me that not only does Jesus not turn the tables on them, which he could have royally done, he actually preserves their dignity and their self-respect and their personhood and value. The fact that the writer of this, uh, the storyteller of this story, doesn't know what Jesus wrote. If he had known, he would have told. The fact that he doesn't know indicates that it didn't become broadcasted. It was between them and Jesus. So Jesus doesn't expose his enemies. If they're going to be exposed, they're going to expose themselves. And there's no case uh, that we're going to come to that more clearly does that, that expresses that as the case of Judas. That Jesus actually states that he's going to betray him, but the disciples don't get it. And when he goes to get, when he goes to actually seal the deal, Jesus says, "Go and do what you must." And they only think he's going out to buy food for the feast. They don't know until Judas hangs himself that he did this, or until he comes before Caiaphas <coughs> and says, "I have sinned and betrayed innocent blood."
So, cardinal principle. God doesn't expose his enemies. He doesn't drag them to court. He doesn't drag them to justice. He doesn't say, you did it. The only time he does that, he did that through the prophet Nathan with David, is to reclaim someone. But that was... That story got told only because I think David wanted it told. So what is what? Yeah. That's really our human construct. We want to accuse people and yeah. have them punished and dealt with, and we want them at least exposed. Yeah. Right. And. Um, so what does this story teach us about salvation? Well, it's private, personal. Private and personal. Where's the atonement in this story? I don't condemn you either. Yeah. You know, that last line could turn us cold, though, couldn't it? Don't you ever do this again. Mm -hmm. I had a teacher in third and fourth grade, I think I've told this story here before, who, uh, and back in those days, Teachers in elementary schools, particularly church schools, were allowed to spank children. And uh, spankings went regularly on in, the, in my school where I attended. In fact, the principal's office was right off, opened right off the third and fourth grade classroom. And that's where the spankings took place. And so my mother was a fifth and sixth grade teacher. She spanked fast and furiously. And um, I remember one day she was she paddled three miscreants who were not willing to cooperate. And um, so we heard one in the whole classroom just fell silent, really silent. Everybody was just like... And then we heard the second one. And then we heard the third one. And and you can you can imagine the the. The intensity of, of feeling in that classroom. Well, one day, my third and fourth grade teacher uh, caught one of my classmates, who was a really sweet guy, and, and never hardly ever caused a moment's grief. She caught him doing something heinous. I have no idea what it was. And she took him in, and she paddled with a rhythm. Whack. Whack. <laughs> Whack. And the poor kid came out sobbing, and, and it was recess time. So everybody left the classroom, and he stayed in the classroom sobbing. Finally, he dried his eyes. I was still in the classroom. I don't remember why I was still in there. I think partly because, or I came in the classroom, actually, as he was wiping his eyes and, and recovering from his pain. And uh, he went up to her, and he said, I'm sorry, Mrs. So-and-so. And she said, well, I'll forgive you if you never do it again. And I remember just being in shock. I'm like, what? <laughs> Conditional forgiveness? <laughs> no way. <laughs> um, it wasn't that way in my home. And, and that sounds like what Jesus is saying here. Go your way, and from now on, do not sin again. Don't ever do it again. That isn't what the Greek says. Go your way. 
And don't go on living the lifestyle now. It's continuous action. Stop doing this to yourself. Well, this, what, what Janice was, no one, sir, she said, I don't condemn you either, Jesus said. Now go and stop injuring yourself by deviating from God's design for life. That's the intent of what Jesus is saying. I imagine he doesn't say it. he didn't say it like <laughs> your teacher did either. Probably <laughs> said it in the most loving manner. Yeah, the tone of voice I'm sure was very, very different. Well, we still have some moments. Anything else in the story that that struck you that we've missed? Then let's go to uh, verses twelve uh, to twenty. Ed, would you please read them? When Jesus again spoke to the people, he said, I am the true light revealing God's character, principles, and methods to the world. Whoever prefers what I am revealing and opens their mind to understand this truth will no longer walk in the darkness of Satan's ways or live in the fear of God's because God's because of the devil's lies, but will have the truth that brings eternal life. Want me to continue? No. <laughs> How far do you want me to go? Um, to verse 20. But the Pharisees challenged him, Here you are promoting yourself. Your testimony is not reliable. You yourself already said that a person promoting himself is not reliable. That's interesting. God calmly, uh, Jesus calmly replied, Even though I am the one telling you about my purpose here, my account is valid because I know where my mission began and where... It, where it will end, but you have no idea where my mission began or what it entails or where it will end. You are always making judgments using narrow and self-centered perspectives. I don't judge anyone. I heal and restore. But if I do judge, my conclusions are right because they are based on the truth. And the truth is seen not by me alone. The truth is also known by my Father who sent me and with whom I stand. In your own law, it is written that any testimony to be valid must be collaborated by another person. I am the one who bears witness about myself, my mission, and purpose. My other witness is my Father who sent me. Then they ask him, Who are you? Are you sure you even know who your Father is? Where is your Father? Jesus replied, You don't know me, nor my character, methods, or principles. You don't understand my purpose or mission. Or do you know or understand my Father? If you really knew me and who I am, you would know my Father also. He said this whole while teaching in the temple near the place where the offerings were put. Yet, even though the religious leaders were enraged by his teaching, no one laid a hand on him because his mission was not yet complete. So you said that 11, that whole section was added in. So this wouldn't be a continuation of like... Not except in, in how the Bible's laid out now. This is not... You, you, it's difficult to know whether to do contextual analysis here. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's probably following... It's just hard to know because it says they went home. But this seems to tie more to chapter 7 than it ties to, chapter, to the pericope adultery. So Jesus told us in Matthew that he that we are the light of the world. But in here he says, I am the light of the world. 
And this is a theme in John, uh, if you go back to John 1, verse 4. In him was life, and the life was the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness does not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify to the light, so that all might believe through him. He himself was not the light, but he came to testify to the light. The true light that enlightens everyone was coming into the world. So when Jesus says, I am the light of the world, this takes us back to this passage. And, and what do you think his hearers would have heard? I am the light of the world. What Old Testament reference would they go to? Moses. Absolutely. Moses on the mountain. Yeah, light isn't mentioned though, it's glory. glory. And glory has a different connotation. Where? Just creation. Creation. Yeah. Right. That's about the only place. Mm-hmm. The, and, and of course, this is where John starts, is with creation. He's the creator. He created. He is the light that shines into the world. You see, he's that, that primordial light that we no longer had after the fall. The light, when God said, let there be light. It's not the light of the sun and the moon and the stars. This is, this is something we don't really know quite what it is. So John would have been a believer in creation then, the seven-day creation. Six days resting on the seventh. I would think so. So when Jesus says, uh, I am the light of the world, he's talking creation light. So light has a much broader basis than just that we think of as light. It's metaphorical. Okay, yeah, but it's revealing God's character. Mm-hmm. So light, <coughs> light is a very strong motif, both with John and with Paul. Paul uses light. And it's everything's total contrast to, like the first part of John there, contrast to the Satan is the darkness. Right. So, um, if you think about it, there's, there's several aspects about light that I think is important for us to understand. One is, you open a door, there's light outside the door, there's darkness inside the room. But you open the door, does the darkness go out or the light come in? The light comes in. The light comes in. Why? Because darkness is the... Absence of light. So light always goes in because light is something. It isn't just nothing. That's one aspect. The other aspect is that light is not something we see. I mean, we can look at it, but it's not something we use to see to look at, what we use to see by. It illuminates what really is. Ever wandered wandered around your house in the dark? Yes. <laughs> and and did you ever get disoriented in your own bedroom? <laughs> now I thought the, the bathroom door was over there. You know? <laughs> um, I've done it a number of times, and you turn on a light, and you're like, "Oh, I didn't think I was there." Right? You see things as they really are, not as you feel them, sense them in the dark. So we're dealing, when we talk about light, we're not just dealing with the truth. We're dealing with our ability to perceive that truth. 
Jesus came to give us the ability to perceive the truth. Truth was always there. The light was the light always could always illuminate it. But we we were in the dark. We couldn't see. And so Jesus is the light that lightens up and we see the truth about God. We see the reality by that light. And so the disciples who never listened to content and only listened to words, the Pharisees, I should say, who never listened to content and always listened to Jesus' words to try to catch them. This is the, this is the hallmark of an abuser. An abuser doesn't listen to what you're saying to understand you from your perspective. An abuser listens to what you say in order to frame an argument against you. And so they deal with words and one-to-one correspondences with words, not with meaning behind words. And there's nothing that more clearly exemplifies this than the church's discussion, ongoing discussion about women in ministry. The way we read the Bible is exactly this kind of abusive mentality when we read the words and we say because it says this it's therefore this we don't get behind them to try to understand the meaning or the context or the situation in fact my understanding is that many who don't believe that women should be in ministry and I'm I'm going there instead of talking about women's ordination because the whole discussion of women's ordination is a smokescreen for trying to get women out of ministry or trying to keep them in, depending on which side you're on. Um, because those who don't want ordination, most of them, or at least many of them, don't want women in ministry, period. And they're trying to maintain that you can't, women can't be in ministry in many parts of the world. Um, I'm hearing stories from women who are pastors in various parts of the world. And we're, we're running backwards instead of trying to move forward when we deal with this issue. Well, but this conference might end up being a, um, what do they call it? A mission. A mission now, right. Which, uh, well, who knows what will happen in a year from now. Mm-hmm. I, I don't want to get started on this. <laughs> I'm just using it as an illustration because there's just two different ways of reasoning involved. And one way is to deal with words and wrestle with words without getting behind them to find the meaning and looking for deeper meaning and comparing Scripture with Scripture and and not settling for just a superficial reading. What is called a plain reading is really a superficial reading. But to get to the meaning, to get what's behind them, this is what they're doing to Jesus. Now you've said it. You've said that you, that uh, now you're giving your own testimony and you said by your own mouth that if you, if you testify yourself, your testimony is not true. Now you've done it. You've testified about yourself. And Jesus doesn't say, doesn't qualify what he said before. Mm-hmm. He doesn't go against it. He just says, well, so <laughs> even if I testify on my own behalf, my testimony is valid. Because I know where I'm going, have come from and where I'm going, but you do not know where I come from and where I'm going. If I speak the truth, my testimony is valid. That's the bottom line. But they could say that was just circular reasoning. 
you say, you say, but where's your witness, you know? Yeah, and that's what they want to say. And they want to say that, right. And that helps me kind of understand more how so few of them really... I, I just can't buy it. It was just in terms of their willing to maintain their position of power and, and whatever else little side issues they had going on, little businesses and stuff. There was more than that. Because his ministry is so clear, and the people are so swayed by his conversation. You know, when the, somewhere I read here, you know, where they were supposed to arrest him, the palace guards, and they wouldn't arrest him. And then, why didn't you arrest him? Well, no one ever spoke like him. Mm-hmm. So that's, in, that's, in the, that's actually the context of what we're reading. So, yeah, so he's, they're getting the meaning behind his words. Well, isn't that isn't that Jesus' witness? Isn't that story Jesus' witness? That's why he can say, "Okay, I'm going to launch now. Now you have your witnesses. Never, I never spoke like any other man. Therefore, I'm the light of the world." Yeah, I th- I think your question about context is important. I think I think it is this uh, last end of chapter seven because that's where this takes place. Yeah, it seems fits into the whole thing of chapter yeah. seven. You judge by human standards, literally according to the flesh. Mm-hmm. The flesh represents the world, the world's way of thinking, the world's value system, how the world sees God. You judge by human standards, I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is valid. For it is not I alone who's ju- who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law, it is written that the testimony of two witnesses is valid. He's just had a whole bunch of witnesses. The temple guards. <laughs> I testify on my own behalf, and the Father who sent me testifies on my behalf. So, two witnesses. So, we'll stop there just a moment. Jesus really is against the judicial process that they have gotten from Babylonia. And yes, they had judicial processes before Babylonia, but Babylonia gave it a caste, a very legal caste, that really put emphasis on witnesses as the way to establish verdict. When you have witnesses, that is considered forensic evidence. It's not related to science. Science. Yeah. It is forensic. Jesus says, okay, in your law it says two witnesses. So I have two witnesses, myself and my father. But what do you do about his st- earlier statement? If you testify of yourself, your witness is not true. Maybe we should find that. Um, 5.30 and 31. I can do nothing on my own as I hear I judge and my judgment is just because I seek to do not to do my own will but the will of him who sent me. If I testify about myself, my testimony is not true. Now he says, even if I testify of myself, my testimony is true. Which verse are you going to go by? But he's also in that 31 saying that there's but there's an abundance of other evidence that verifies that I say is true. And this evidence is reliable and valid. 
See what Jesus is getting at here. The reason he says, if I testify myself, my testimony is not true, is because if I, that's all I did was make claims. That doesn't make me true. But even if I judge, my judgment is just because I seek not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. I'm here to reveal the Father, not to talk about myself. But when I have the evidence of all these officers who came to arrest me, and they reported back at the temple, never did a man speak like this man, then I have the basis on which to say I am the light of the world, and therefore my testimony is true. Because that kind of testimony of them going back to the temple and saying that, is comes closer to empirical evidence because it is rooted in experience. Then they said to him, verse 19, Where is your father? Jesus answered, You do not know either me or my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. And here Jesus gets to the heart of this. This isn't a courtroom debate. The, the Pharisees have made it a courtroom debate. But John's gospel is rooted in a cosmic debate that's rooted in creation. That's why he starts with creation, chapter 1, verse 1. And in a cosmological creation, only empirical evidence stands. And what is important is what you know so about the Father. When they're talking in, in chapter 5, when he's referring to John, does he mean John the Baptist? Or is he talking about John the disciple? It's John the Baptist. John the Baptist. That's why I took it to me. <clears throat> but would the Pharisees have accepted what John the Baptist had been saying? And well, they they were sort of compelled to because the people did. They didn't want to go against the people. Well, it just seems like Christ is trying to get through the words and get behind the words so they understand who he is. Exactly. So he's still attempting to work with them. He's trying to create meaning. And he can't work with them by accusing them or pointing his finger at them. People just get defensive and back away. So right. he's being really gentle with them. Right. But they, they're just not going to accept it. Now some must have accepted it. And I don't care how many forensic witnesses he sent to convince them they would not accept it. No. Um, and that's why the legal court is a farce, because it doesn't bring out the truth. It doesn't bring out the willingness of the persons to, to be open and honest with the evidence. That's why the pictures of the justice, she's got, got a blindfold. I always thought it meant because so she wouldn't be swayed by one or the other, but that's not what it means. Justice is blind because the courts are not really there for justice. No, and especially, you know, even in, even in, at least in Babylonia, you had what is called, um, the courts were based on evidence. I can't think of the term now. But they were testimonial courts. They, they, they tried to find, to get to the, the, the evidence, whereas our courts are adversarial courts. And adversarial courts, the goal is not to find the truth, it's to win the argument. So justice is indeed blind.
Let's bow our heads for prayer. Gracious Father, we, we admire Jesus who was so mistreated, so abused, and so rejected by those who should have accepted him and yet who never took issue in kind. He never sought to expose his enemies. He never uh, tried to draw them out and, and frame them in any way. He never counter-abused them. But he was always gracious, always attempting to work with them, always attempting to provide evidence that would appeal to their reason. We admire that. And as human beings, we ask to be like that. Give us your spirit with all of its fruit. That we may behold Jesus and reveal him in our lives to the world. In his name, amen. Amen.